Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Arthur Brooks. Arthur is a social scientist who focuses on human happiness. He's a professor of the practice of public leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School and professor of management practice at the Harvard Business School. He is also the best selling author of 12 books and the creator of the popular How to Build a Life column in The Atlantic. He previously served for 10 years as president of the American Enterprise Institute. And most recently, he's the author of the book From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. And that is what we get into in this conversation. We talk about what it takes to build a good life, the perverse power of social comparison, taboos around talking about intelligence, political dignity and ethical hierarchy. We talk for a while about the Dalai Lama and um, our mutual experience of him, the nature of love, fluid and crystallized intelligences, the strange case of Linus Pauling, the limits of identity. And then in the second half, we have a spirited discussion about atheism and religion. Arthur is a devout Roman Catholic. I am not. And we get into that a little. We talk about the fear of death, psychedelics, existentialism, St. Thomas Aquinas, and other topics. Anyway, I enjoyed this. This is an example of the kind of conversations I'm having more and more over in the life section of Waking Up. But I'm presenting it here, too, because I think it will be of general interest to all of you. And now I bring you Arthur Brooks. I am here with Arthur Brooks. Arthur, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Sam. What a delight. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Yeah, yeah. We've, um, I, I know we know many people in common, but I, I don't think we've ever met. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not aware of having met you anywhere. I agree. I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. I feel like I know you, though. I've listened to you so much. <laughs> well, um, I loved your latest book, uh, which we'll discuss, the title of which is From Strength to Strength. And I think we'll focus on, on that for most of the discussion. But catch me up on what you uh, have done. I mean, this will be relevant to the conversation about your book, but how do you describe your professional and intellectual history? What have you focused on? And, uh, and then we'll get to the present. It's peripatetic. Um, I, haven't, I haven't actually done the same thing year after year after year like a lot of people have in my profession. I'm an academic like you. I'm in, I'm in the, the world of academia, but I came late to it. I, I started my career after being unceremoniously ushered from college at age 19 as a professional musician. Mm. I, I started as a professional classical French horn player. I went on tour for a long time through my 20s, as a matter of fact. My parents called it my gap decade. And, uh, and, and they were none too pleased about it, actually. Mm. My father was a college professor, as was his father. I just saw, and I wound up in the Barcelona Symphony, playing in the, in the symphony orchestra there until my late 20s. And then I actually went back to college by correspondence. I didn't have enough money to, or, or time to, to do it traditionally. And finished my bachelor's degree at 30 and started graduate school and got very interested in, in social, the social sciences, just the behavior of how people 
what made people tick and weirdly became an economist, started my PhD and became an academic for 10 years, then mm. left after 10 years, most of it at Syracuse, to be the president of a think tank in Washington, D.C. called the, the American Enterprise Institute, one of the most, one of the oldest think tanks and largest think tanks in the world. And after doing that for 10 years, I retired in my mid-50s at this point and came to Harvard, where I've been for the past three years teaching at the business school and the Kennedy School, where I teach the science of happiness, mm. mostly to MBA students. Nice, nice. Well, uh, I want to um, circle back to the um, several of the transitions there. You, you and I actually have a, a slightly similar background in having taken the decade of our 20s off from the, the usual... Um, Academic grind only to return to it and uh, sort of do things backwards, which is interesting. But so when you, when you were at AEI, what years were you running AEI? I took over AEI in the last month of the George W. Bush administration, and I finished in the middle of 2019. So I came on the, on the first day of 2009, and then I left in June of 2019. Ten and a half years. Uh, I forget. What it was. So were you running it when Ayan Hirsi Ali joined or was that? No, she was there. She, we, we were coincident for a while. She joined under my predecessor and she was there with me. And then we did a lot of stuff together as when she was a non-resident fellow. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so I, I, though my politics have always diverged uh, considerably from AEI, I have a, um, a soft spot for the organization because it was literally the only foundation that would take Ayan uh, when she was really, you know, just desperate for refuge, leaving the Netherlands and and incurring all of these security concerns around her um, apostasy, and uh, you know, the AEI saved her, and it was so I, I was incredibly grateful at that moment, being one yeah. of her friends. Yeah, yeah, no, it's also it's a it's an organization dedicated to intellectual apostates, sort of literal apostates like Ayan Hirsi Ali. Mm-hmm. But also just the intellectual apostates, weird people, people who think differently. Because, look, this is what makes life interesting. And a, and a competition of ideas really is fundamental to a free society. The, the idea of conventional thinking is antithetical to progress as far as we're concerned. And so I, I, I was really dedicated to that principle. I was looking for weirdos, quite mm-hmm. frankly, you know, people who are going to break up convention. Yeah. Okay. So let's, um, let's start with your book. And... Maybe we can start with the way you actually start your book. I mean, you have this uh, anecdote that uh, is kind of the, the founding inspiration and, and epiphany for your book. Perhaps you, you, you can tell that and link it up with, with these various transitions you have uh, made in your life. Yeah, I start the book by telling a story that had a, a kind of a foundational impact on me because it was about halfway through my time as president of this think tank. And it was a great job. I mean, I was working my tail off. I was traveling around giving maybe 175 speeches a year. And I was fundraising like crazy. I had to raise 50 million bucks a year. It was like, Mm. my job was like running for the Senate and never getting elected, basically, which probably is better than getting elected in the Senate. But about halfway through, five years or so through, I was having this mild existential crisis. You know, what does this lead to? What, what am I actually trying to do? I'm going to do my work and do it better and be more successful, I suppose, or at least create more impact and value for society as I saw it. But, but then what? I mean, sooner or later, I'll get a shove or I'll get tired or something and stop. And, you know, what does this mean, basically? What's the cadence of it, basically? And around the time I was on a plane and had overheard this conversation. Now, you and I as basically as social scientists, 
know that our real laboratory is overheard conversations. It's the conversation on the plane. It's you know the people talking behind you at Starbucks. That's that's where the real that that's where the interesting ideas come from. And I heard a conversation of a couple, an elderly couple. I could tell by their voices. I could tell it was a man and a woman. And I assumed they were married because it was a pretty intimate conversation. And I couldn't see him. It was it was nighttime. It was dark. But I heard the husband kind of mumble a little bit. And then the wife say, don't say it would be better if you were dead. <laughs> and now they really have my attention. I mean, I'm just keyed in mm-hmm. at this point. I'm not trying to, to eavesdrop, but I mean, who wouldn't be listening at this point? And then he mumbles a little bit more. And she says, it's not true that nobody, nobody cares about you and nobody remembers you. And, and I'm thinking that this is probably somebody who's not like you, Sam, or the people listening to your program. This is not somebody who was super motivated. It's probably somebody who's disappointed because he didn't get the education that he wanted and start the business or get the jobs that he wanted. And now it's near the end and he's disappointed. Well, we get to, we were coming from LA to Washington, a flight I was on a lot in those days. And we land in Washington maybe an hour later and the lights go on and we all stand up and, and I'm curious. So I turn around just to get a look at this, at the disconsolate old guy. And it's one of the most famous men in the world. I mean, this guy is rich and famous because of things that he did in the 60s and 70s. And he's very old, but he's super well known. I mean, people recognize him. And as we were leaving the plane, you know, he's right behind me coming up the aisle. And the pilot stops him and says, recognizes him, of course, and says, sir, you've been my hero since I was a little boy. Mm. And I turned around and he's beaming with pride. And I'm thinking to myself, so which is it? Which is the real guy? The one beaming with pride right now or the one confessing to his wife that he might as well be dead. And I thought to myself, you know, the world has a kind of a bogus formula for success, actually, um, which is what I had been suffering under and which I just had witnessed, that if you want to be happy, you want to die happy, Sam, here's the deal. Work hard, succeed, bust your pick, bank your success, die happy. And it's wrong. It's not true. And we all kind of know it's not true, but I, I saw this in stark relief. And I started actually reading biographies differently at that point mm-hmm. of you know, great, great men and women throughout history to see if they died happy. And a lot of them didn't. And it sent me on this quest to figure out what was this curse of a lot of people who were very successful in life, that they, they tended to be very unhappy at the end of life. And what could somebody do to build what amounts to a happiness 401k plan. I was going to turn my social scientist toolkit on the business of getting happier as you get older. And that's the book that we're talking about. Mm. And this curse is something you call the striver's curse. Yeah. But th- this, the insight into the problem visited you earlier than is um, really the, the central lesson of your book, because your book, as we will see, focuses on inevitable changes that come with aging, but you right. kind of slammed up against a brick wall in music, you know, in, in your, still in your, I guess your late 20s. Just maybe describe that and yeah. talk about what you just, what those implications were for you. Well, one of the things that I talk about in the book is one of the reasons that strivers, really hard workers, ambitious people, why they, why they struggle and, and suffer often later in life is because what they're good at, they can't keep doing forever, that there is inevitable decline. And I talk about the the neuroscientific basis of that. I mean, there's very strong, you know, neuroscience and social science for why that is the case. But it, I also have some personal experience in decline. You know, I'd experienced decline, not the kind that comes in midlife, 
but I'd had a weird decline in my musical career that gave me a taste of how bitter it actually is. You know, I had all I ever wanted to be as a kid was a French horn player. I wanted to be the world's greatest French horn player, which is kind of a kind of a weird ambition, I realized. But nonetheless, it was my ambition. And and as I went through my teenage years, it seemed like that was actually within reach or or something like it was within reach because I was just getting better every year and my career was going well and I was playing professionally. And then something happened in my early 20s where I started getting worse and I couldn't I couldn't figure it out. Now this happens to people that that rely on gross and fine motor skills a lot and there's a lot of possible physiological or even neurological explanations for it, but it's not well understood why some athletes, why they burn out early, why some classical musicians peak and decline early, but I was. And by mm -hmm. the time I was 22, I was finding that things that, that used to be easy were hard and things that used to be hard were impossible. And, and I was noticing this decline all the way through my mid-20s. So I, I was trying desperately. I was going to the best teachers. I was practicing more and more. I took different jobs. I wound up in the symphony in Barcelona because I thought that maybe this kind of job, this kind of playing would re-spark my, my, my ascent as a, as a French horn player. And of course it didn't. And, you know, it really took a lot of, well, it took getting married to somebody who was kind of my guru to help me understand that I was not a French horn player. I was a person. I was mm -hmm. a human being that happened to play the French horn. That had never occurred to me because I was a classic success addicted self-objectifier, which is one of the things I talk about a lot in my book. What holds people back is that they're hopelessly addicted to success. And I was too, but it, and it took somebody who really loved me for who I was as a person as opposed to what I was professionally to help me do something else. Well, what, what's the normal pattern of decline for a musician of, of that sort? The normal pattern of decline is that you would get better all the way through your 20s and into your 30s. So your technique would actually get better. And then you'd peak as a French horn player or a violinist or something. Ordinarily, your technique would peak in your late 30s, and you'd start to see pretty gradual decline through your 40s and 50s. And if you're truly a prodigy, even in your 60s and 70s, you can be playing very, very beautifully. But your best playing will typically be in your late 30s hmm. is what you find. And that had happened to me in my early 20s for, you know, whatever reason. There may have been an injury that had gone undetected or, or whatever reason. I just was, I guess I was just precociously in decline. Mm -hmm. And it gave me, by the way, Sam, it was a blessing because it gave me an opportunity to retool and, you know, go back to school and learn something new. But, I, you know, I was so tied to it that I didn't even tell anybody I'd gone to college. I was ashamed mm -hmm. that anybody would know that I was studying. And, you know, it was a real secret. The only person, literally the only person who knew was my wife and, and none of my colleagues. I remember one time in the music world that we were, you know, hanging around and there was this one woman, she was a pretty good French horn player, but she came and said, I got big news. You know, I just got a full scholarship to go to medical school at the University of Miami. I'm going to become a surgeon. And after she left the room, we're like, see, she doesn't have it. <laughs> Talk about a low status job, a surgeon. Yeah, if you're among French horn players, that's funny. It's, it's, it's questions of status are central here and you know, questions of identity. I mean, you see, you're, you, what you're describing is your identity was entirely anchored to this notion of you being an increasingly wonderful musician. And when that began to erode, you became increasingly uncomfortable for obvious reasons. Right. I mean, even just in the, in the story you just described, one sense of identity, and this is something you point out in the book, is notions of success that can accrete around it are, for the most part, 
in relation to others. I mean, they're born of social comparison. They're born of notions of status, explicit or implicit. So they're positional. And yet there are multiple axes for these kinds of comparisons and, and status judgments. And so it's kind of, you know, we're both laughing when we describe the elitism of the French horn players looking down on, on lowly surgeons. But of course, surgeons would return the favor. And there's, I think this has probably happened to you, there are many contexts in which you find yourself in the company of highly successful people and you know, witness you know, various status games and witness you know, what they do to your own self-concept. But these um, comparisons occur and combine and recombine in strange ways. You can be an academic who may feel you know, kind of low status compared to you know, some other academics, but higher status with respect to the variable of education Around people who just have a lot of money, say right, but the, right, and, absolutely, you know, and it, it, they're just there. At least a dozen ways you can kind of point the the arrow of your self regard so as to compare yourself to those around you, and it is um, really the, the the lesson in the end is that all of this is fatuous and not the basis for a, a durable feeling of of well being or a sense that one is living a meaningful life. Absolutely. And, and you know, it, we can even find stranger versions of it today. I mean, we talk about on college campuses or any place, there are people who get their sense of identity and their sense of hierarchy of identity with respect to their their grievance, yeah, um, their sense of victimhood. Yeah. And, and so it's kind of like, you know, people will often say that college campuses are like the victim Olympics in some cases. And what that is about is, I mean, nothing to make light of because there are legitimate grievances to be sure. But to the extent that we say one group is more aggrieved than another group, that's the same thing as saying that a good French horn player has less status somehow than somebody with a PhD. It's just, it, it gets very exotic very quickly and is pretty unhelpful and pretty unconstructive for living the best life. I think it's suffice it to say. So in your book, you make much of two different types of intelligence and the time course of their decline. Maybe we should jump into that. Perhaps we should acknowledge up front that intelligence itself is a somewhat taboo topic. I mean, even to acknowledge that it is unequally distributed in the world is taboo. I mean, it's, it's there for all to notice. I mean, however you, however you want to define intelligence, even if we admit that how you define it may be open to some caviling, whatever definition you have, you have something that is implicitly hierarchical. And it's just there is no definition that renders everyone equivalent. And yet that's, it's strange that it's taboo to acknowledge that. I mean, it's, you know, it's not at all taboo to acknowledge that some French horn players are better than others or some right. athletes are better than others. And yet, to talk in any straightforward way about someone being smarter than someone else, that makes everyone uncomfortable. Do you, do you have a sense of why that is? Well, part of it is that we've made the mistake for a very long time of equating intelligence with, with moral superiority. Hmm. I mean, how, how many parents will, will compliment their kids by saying, you're so smart? I mean, it's not, you wouldn't compliment your kid by saying your hair is so long. You wouldn't, I mean, it's just, these are, 
you know, if these are characteristics that actually that vary not just on the basis of your own effort by but by you know something having to do, for example, with your genetics, it's then it's nothing worth complimenting for Pete's sake. It's like your eyes are so blue. I mean, what a weird thing to compliment somebody for. I suppose that we could mm-hmm. to admire that particular quality, but to not to equate it with some sort of moral superiority is really important. And yet that's what people have done for the longest time. And if we, if we think that, that there's an equivalency between intelligence and cognitive ability, for example, and moral superiority, then we're going to be getting into all of, these, this, all of this confusion to begin with. Now, there's other ways that people have in our field, yours and mine, have talked about it that's less controversial. For example, in my book, I talk about the work of Raymond Cattell, who was a social psychologist in, in Great Britain working in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And, and Cattell was basically just noticing that there are two types of geniuses, one, one that blooms early and one that blooms late, and they have different characteristics. They have different strengths that, that give them these genius characteristics. And then he noticed later that these genius characteristics exist in everybody in varying degrees that you're really good at something early and you're really good at something later. So it's a lot less polemical than the mm. way that we talk about, for example, IQ scores. Right, right. Yeah. And, and this is the distinction between fluid and crystallized intelligence that you yeah, exactly. talk about. Yeah, exactly. I, want, I, just, I just wonder if there's something more to it. I, mean, I, I, this, I haven't thought about this much, but you know, my own relationship to this concept strikes me as peculiar. So for instance, I mean, like at no point in my life did I ever think that, that maybe I should be a professional athlete, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like I mean, the, the, the sport I played the most, uh, you know, the team sport I played the most was soccer. I definitely had enough exposure to soccer to discover in myself the aptitude that would lead me to be a professional soccer player, right? I mean, I, I think I started playing around age nine. I played straight through high school. I was certainly not a bad soccer player. And, and I, you know, even in the, in the context of, you know, a little school team, I think I probably thought of myself as a good soccer player. But then I went to college. I went, when I went to Stanford, there was, you know, literally not a single neuron in my brain that thought maybe I should try out for the varsity soccer team. Right. It was a good team. I think they even, when I was there, I think they beat the Olympic team. So it was, you know, it was a serious soccer team. And I mean, I don't even think I consciously closed that door. It's just, I never even looked for a door. I mean, it was just, it was obvious that my abilities as a soccer player were so bounded that no thought need, need be expended on, <laughs> on my future professionally as a soccer player. <laughs> right. And in no way do I feel diminished by that egoically. That just that was not my my wheelhouse. But when I think about you know other things left unexplored of that sort, if I think well, if I had applied myself more to mathematics, you know, could I have discovered in myself that I was really a great mathematician? Right? Could I? I, mean, I, I was obviously exposed to mathematics as much as I was exposed to soccer. Presumably, you know, I, I was exposed enough to have discovered whether I was going to be the next Alan Turing or Claude Shannon or Norbert Wiener, or you, you take your pick. I didn't discover that. And yet, I think if, you know, in my crazier moments, I think part of me believes that if I had just pushed into that area, if I had persisted, really the, the sky was the, the limit. There's no telling what I could have become in that area. Now, it takes me about 10 seconds 
to convince myself that that is almost certainly bullshit, right? There's no way I, you know, was going to be the next Alan Turing. Just statistically, it's as likely as me being the, you know, the next you know, LeBron James or some athlete who, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I never for a moment would think I would stand a chance of being. And yet, it doesn't feel that way. Intelligence is the sort of thing that you feel like it's, just, it's very hard to admit to yourself that there is a scale and you are at a certain point on it. Again, define intelligence in as piecemeal a way as you want. Give me, you know, a hundred different forms of intelligence. Take your pick. You are not the greatest at that one, very likely, right? And yet it's, there's something about that that's hard for people to admit. And it does feel diminishing in a way that just acknowledging that, you know, you weren't going to be a professional athlete isn't. I, I don't know what to compare this to. It's a little bit like, you know, as writers, we, we've run into this. This is a kind of an, an old saw of writers that, you know, basically everyone imagines that they should write a book, right? Everyone imagines that, that they have a book in them because right. everyone's a language user and everyone does some writing. And it's, you know, you're constantly bumping into people who think they should be writing a book, whereas you're not bumping into people who think they should be playing the French horn at the highest level. And so maybe intelligence is something like that, where because everyone is using it all day long, it's very hard to think about it being bounded in a way that is invidious to oneself. Yeah. We also have a society that is increasingly giving returns to intellectual ability. I mean, we have a very complex society and this is, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the things that virtually guarantees that you're going to do well if you're, you know, if you have strong intellectual gifts. And so the result of that is that it's it's a better thing to have than good lips for playing the French horn. I mean, if like, mm -hmm. and if you're going to, you have your a kid and you say, oh, you got two choices. The kid is going to be really gifted intellectually or the kid's going to have, you know, an unbelievable embouchure to play the trombone or the French horn or something. You're going to like, you'd be nuts to say, look, Little Johnny's intellectually pretty mediocre, but man, he can, he can, he's got good technique on the trombone. That's, there are very few people that would take that. Maybe my parents would have taken that. I'm not sure. But, but the truth is that it's just that intellectual giftedness is highly fungible across modern yeah. society, which has been in more and more and more rewarding that. And a lot of people are, you know, putting moats around their castles for that too, making it into a harder and harder society. And, you know, this is what it really does. I think it comes down to a question of we all have to recognize the, the radical equality of human dignity, notwithstanding our differences of all different kinds. And to the point that we can't quite recognize that everybody has the same dignity, then we have to be very uncomfortable with, difference, with differences that people actually have, I think. Yeah. I think there's a distinction between human dignity and like the, the political equivalence between people. I mean, all, all people are created equal. That's a political statement. That's the world we want to live in. And yet we know that there are some people who add much more value to society than others, right? And again, this is just a you know, whether you want to talk about this in, in absolute terms or if this is just a contingent fact of what a society happens to value, you know, you're, you're going to find certain people who cater to those desires and demands more than others. And so in a hostage crisis, you know, it, it is natural to want to rescue 
you know, Albert Einstein and, and Martin Luther King Jr. before you rescue, I don't know, somebody who's has and will do nothing of special value for anyone else, right? <laughs> and more resources will be expended upon trying to rescue that person, presumably. Now, we don't want to live in that world. We want to live in a world where we're impartial, or at least there's a pretense of impartiality, uh, more or less across the board, where so, you know, doctors work as hard as they ever gonna, they're ever going to work to save the life of anyone. But, you know, as you say, you know, intelligence is this magical property that is incredibly fungible. It's just so useful across the board. I mean, almost anything we want either depends more or less entirely on intelligence or, or, or at least it's safeguarded by intelligence. But, you know, obviously there, there are many more things or at least several more things that are arguably as important or more important. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk about a few of those things, but there, there's certainly a dissociation in some people, between intelligence and wisdom, uh, and certainly intelligence and a capacity for ethical engagement and and love and compassion, and it's the love and compassion and wisdom side of things that that wants to build a a more egalitarian view of the situation. But I feel like we can't lie to ourselves about there being a kind of ethical hierarchy as well. I mean, I mean to make this absolutely clear. There are people who create net harm to society. You know, we put certain people in boxes for the rest of their lives because they're, they're so despicable and dangerous if you let them out of the box. And yet, uh, we also give them competent medical care when they need it. How do you think about the situation of, of moral worth and dignity uh, versus the, the, the kind of gradations of benefit to others that uh, I just sketched? Well, yeah, all of these are incredibly nuanced ethical questions that we're trying to live out day to day. And I think it's interesting that we can explore these things in the context of what we want for ourselves and what we want for our own kids. So, you know, we tend to prize certain things, certain characteristics above all other things. And, and you know, in the hierarchy of what we want for our kids, we want our kids to be really successful. We want them to be really smart and we want them to but if I if I gave you two choices, um, you know, you can you have a son or a daughter who's a psychopathic genius, or one who is of moderate ability, who's benevolent and loving and kind. I know which one you'd choose. Yeah, <laughs> and a hundred times out of a hundred. And what you've just told me is those are competing characteristics. And in point of fact, benevolence, love, and kindness is probably more important as far as you're concerned. And that's an important value for our society to start prizing and be more overt about as far as I'm concerned. That's one of the things that I think that we could all probably agree on that would cool a lot of the, you know, the tensions around a lot of these conversations. What are the human values that should be and actually kind of are more important to us than cognitive ability, than you know, academic performance? And, and the answer is the extent to which we, but we, be, we can behave ethically and in a loving way toward one another. And that, the sort of benevolence across society that we can and how we can foster that more in, in young people. And so that's a lot of what I've dedicated my work to doing. You know, as an academic, for example, you know, when, I, when I left my think tank, I was discerning what do I want to do the rest of my life. And, and I decided that I was going to spend the rest of my, I was mid-50s, 55 years old, and I said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life lifting people up and bringing them together in bonds of happiness and love using my intellect and using my ideas. Because I think that those are higher values than the other things. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, although I would just point out that there's an implicit hierarchy even there. I mean, I think it's obvious that some people are more compassionate and wiser and more loving than others. For sure. So that's a domain in which any one person can grow, and there's you know there are methods by which one can grow, you know, across all of those variables. But there's no question that there are ethical prodigies in the world. Uh, at whatever point in life they fully embody those abilities. And uh, I mean, you, you mentioned a few in your book, and I think you, you mentioned in your book that you've, you actually have had some um, direct uh, connection with uh, the Dalai Lama. What, what has that been about? About 10 years ago, when I was still president of AEI, I started thinking about the people that I wanted to have deep conversations, ethical conversations about big issues of the day with people whom I really admired morally, people whom I admired spiritually, people who are adroit. And, and really the person on the top of that list is the world's most respected religious leader, which is the, who is the Dalai Lama. And so I got in contact with his team and with some of my colleagues at AEI, they granted us an hour with him in Dharamsala in his monastery in the Himalayan foothills. And it was an arduous journey getting up there for sure. But yeah. it was just sort of magic as soon as we met. We started talking, having these big ideas. I invited him to the United States. He came. I interviewed him. We wound up writing together. Um, I interviewed him many times. We've become friends. He's a beloved teacher and friend, and I've learned a great deal from him. I mean, he has a completely different a spiritual tradition than me. He sees the world in many ways very differently than me. But what we agree on is this, this, in, this inherent dignity of all people. You know, he reminds me, it's interesting, you know, because he's, he's Tibetan. He's not American. You and I are Americans, and we see things inherently a little bit differently. But he'll say, remember, you're one in seven billion people, by which he doesn't mean that I'm a speck, that I'm insignificant, but that there's a, the that we're all part of, you know, the, I mean, I, I know that you practice meditation in a very serious way. So the concept of emptiness means something to you. Mm. And the whole idea is that, you know, there's this koan in, in Zen Buddhism, what is the, the sound of one hand clapping? It's almost a cliche at this point. But really what it is, it's the answer to a question, who am I as an individual? I am the sound of one hand clapping. The truth is that I as an individual with my ideas don't mean very much until I, my hand clapping comes against the hand of Sam Harris and we have this particular conversation. And it's the Dalai Lama who's helped me understand that my dignity that doesn't mean very much until it actually is, meets that your dignity together. It's the togetherness that really matters a lot. That has been one of the most valuable relationships in my intellectual and my spiritual development. Hmm. Yeah, he. It's been many years since I've seen him, but I, I did have some very nice, kind of concentrated exposure to him uh, in my, I guess, late twenties. The most substantial was he. Uh, I was um, invited to be part of a Buddhist group that was arranging his tour of France for a month, hmm. and these were people. These are some friends who had been on you know, three-year retreats in, in Tibetan Buddhist retreat centers uh, in France. And so they were organizing his tour, and, and, and it was this you know, fairly arduous tour where he was basically changing cities every 24 or 48 hours for a month. And uh, so you're, you know, you're packing and unpacking and packing and unpacking. And, and we were his security detail. Uh, unlike in America, he was also given a, like a, the French equivalent of a, a secret service detail as well, but we were the kind of the buffer between the real bodyguards and the 
the rascal multitude in France. So strangely, we got into much more conflict with the people mm. than the, the real bodyguards did because they just used us as a buffer. But it was a really interesting experience because I got to see what he was like in all of these transitional moments with large groups of people again and again and again in a situation where I had to be, you know, like my job was to be paranoid and to be, you know, scrutinizing every room looking for a threat. And his, you know, his job is to be Mr. Compassion and just beam love and good humor at, at everyone. <laughs> so it was, it, it was actually, it was, it was a strangely toxic role to be in because it was just, you know, rather than stay on his channel, you, ha you had to be the jerk on some level. <laughs> and I got to be a jerk with very poor language skills so that, you know, I didn't even know, have enough French to be diplomatic. So, you know, I'm telling people- <laughs> there's, not, there's not enough French in the world to be diplomatic, Sam. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Yeah, well, and, the, and the French, I, I notice, often aren't, aren't very diplomatic. But, but I was, you know, telling people not to move and back up and, you know, just, you know, kind of barking orders at journalists. And it's amazing how rude people can be. I mean, literally, I, there were journalists who at some point, you know, physically- grabbed him and turned him, wheeled him around in order to get a photo of him. It was completely insane. But um, <laughs> what I saw in him was just this ability to, almost without exception, not miss anyone. I mean, he would be you know, exiting a hotel and there'd be, you know, a dozen or more people just gathered to watch him go because he was such a celebrity. And, and again, he's a bigger celebrity in France than, than he is in the States, at least at that point. And he would just make, you know, it could be, you know, almost instantaneous, but he would make a connection with basically everyone in the room on his way out. And I, he was just a kind of the ultimate mensch. You know, I, you know, I guess I could be projecting somewhat on him, but I actually don't, you know, I don't hold him out to be, you know, at the top of the pantheon of, of meditation masters in Tibetan Buddhism. I mean, in fact, I, you know, I, I studied with some of his teachers, and you know, the kind of, so I, I've met the people he looked up to, and uh, you know, among Tibetan contemplatives. So it's, it wasn't that; it was just that he was just such a kind and well-integrated person in in the way he engaged, you know, every, everyone at every level of society. It was just so admirable. And um, mm. again, that it, it's you know, some of it could be innate, but. You, you look at how he spends his time, it's not far-fetched to believe that a lot of it has to do with the training he's engaged. For sure. And I, I love him. And it's, it's interesting because the model of that kind of kindness and goodness is really quite different than that which we're used to. The, the Dalai Lama, he's, he's unattached to everything, including to people. He's not attached to people. It's the, the yeah. you know, it's, you know, he, he, he often talks about his cat. He loves his cat. So it seems. And so one time I asked him, so what's your cat's name? And he looked at me like I was asking him a bizarre question. Like I was asking him, what's your left shoe named? You know what? He says, no name, cat. Right. And the whole point is that there's this, there's love and then there's attachment and love and attachment are not the same thing. And this has been hugely instructive for me because, you know, I have traveled with him as well. I wasn't, I wasn't you know, doing bad cop like you. Mm. Um, I've been in the, you know, the, the nice situation of actually being able to be, you know, with him and interviewing him and, and, and just being with him yeah. when he's been on tour. But I've noticed the same thing, that he has this, this, this love, this, 
universalism in the love that he has for everybody. And part of it is because he is, he is loving and unattached at the same time. I think this is a standard that's very hard to attain. It's a really hard thing for me to attain. You know, and it, it, it's made me reflect an awful lot about how I try to live my life in many ways. You know, one of the things that I find in my own research as a, as a social scientist is, you know, I, I study a lot the satisfaction problem. I mean, the satisfaction problem, we'll call it the Mick Jagger problem. You know, I can't get no satisfaction. And the truth is, you can't keep no satisfaction. That's the truth. That's, mm. you know, the homeostasis problem, the hedonic treadmill problem. Anybody who listens to your show knows about all about all these ideas that you you try and you try and you try and you, you think that the new car smell will last forever, that the, the marriage will give you permanent satisfaction. Nothing does. And the reason is because Mother Nature just doesn't care if you're happy. And she wants you to pass on your genes and, and doesn't want you to be satisfied. She wants you to run and run and run, to strive and strive and strive. And the answer to it really comes from detaching love from attachment. That's the really important thing, because if you're a, you're, you think of something as the be-all and the end-all, that you, that you conceive of something as your permanent source of satisfaction, you will always be disappointed. It's okay to love and be non-attached at the same time. Mm. How do you do that? Well, that's the trick, isn't it? <laughs> Ultimately, that's not a question of having more. That's a question of of wanting less. And, and that's one of the, really the great moral lessons that I've learned from the Dalai Lama and something I'm trying to, that I'll probably spend the rest of my life trying to instantiate in the way I live my life. Yeah, I, I think you, you need to unpack what you mean by love and, and differentiating a few components. I think right. shows how you could, could maximize love without any real implication of attachment. And, and it's, Buddhism is, I think, especially useful here in, in how it differentiates some of these concepts. But so there's a term that is usually translated as, as loving kindness from Buddhism. The, the Pali Sanskrit is metta. And um, it really is just the wish for others to be happy. Right. The wish for them to be free of suffering is the compassion variant of that. And for that wish to really be tuned up to something like its maximum, a few things have to be, you know, purged, uh, you know, or, or kind of burned off as, as impurities there. And, and one is the sense that you want something from the other people, right? That your happiness is in any way predicated on getting something from them, right? Or that your happiness is in any way competitive with theirs. So another aspect of Another variant of it is called uh, mudita, which is a sympathetic joy, which is you know the the antithesis of envy, right? So you know, we've all noticed this ghastly quality of mind where you know something good happens in the life of a friend, right? They they have some great professional success, or you know something great happens, and you find in yourself a limit on your capacity to actually be happy for them, right? Because yeah. your you you feel somehow your happiness has been diminished. I mean, it's just a ghastly quality of mind. Oh, it's the worst. I mean, envy is a, is, a, is a deadly sin for that reason. My father was very funny. He used to say that, son, remember, it's not enough to win. Your friends have to lose right. too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think there's, a, isn't there a Gore Vidal quote around there, which is just in incredibly ugly. I forget what, what it it's was. Like every time one of my friends succeeds, I die a little yeah. bit inside. <laughs> so, I think that's what he something said. Something like right? that, yeah. But, you know, there's, this, there's, a, the, there's a Western tradition that gets at this in the same way that is a little bit easier for most, most of us to understand. 
And that comes from Aquinas, who was really paraphrasing Aristotle. So Aquinas, of course, in the 13th century, in the Summa Theologica, he was really reintroducing, he was a, he was a Neoplatonist, but he reintroduced Aristotle to audiences. We probably wouldn't read the Nicomachean Ethics today were it not for St. Thomas Aquinas. And Aquinas defined in an Aristotelian way what love means, which gets at exactly what we're talking about here. He defined love as to will the good of the other as other. I mean, mm. this could have been right out of the mouth of the Buddha. As mm. a matter of fact, he was really impressed and really influenced by many Eastern teachings. And so when you read Aquinas, it's, it's, it's pretty Eastern. But to will the good of the other, this is not about sentimentality. This is not about feelings, which is really important. You know, when I teach happiness at the Harvard Business School, the first day of class, I say, what's happiness? And they start talking about that feeling I get when dot, dot, dot. And I say, wrong. Happiness has feelings, but the, just like the Thanksgiving dinner has a smell. That's evidence of happiness. Happiness has to be something more tangible than that, or you can't improve it. There's not much you can do about it. You shouldn't be taking a class in it, for Pete's sake. And, and, that's, and that's really an Aristotelian or, or a Thomistic concept very related to the Buddhist ideas that we're talking about here. Do you love somebody? Well, then will their good as that person. And then, then you're on the road to be perhaps becoming a bodhisattva. Mm. Okay, well, I want to get back to um, Aquinas and, and uh, related topics there, but let's go back to intelligence where we left it. We did not actually describe the difference between fluid and crystallized intelligence and the, the use to which you put these concepts in your book. So tell me, what, what are your thoughts on that topic? So Cattell, uh, Raymond Cattell, the social psychologist, great British social psychologist, noticed that people they get better at things through their 20s and 30s, that kind of 10,000 hours deal where they have focus, the ability to work hard, a lot of working memory. And almost anything that you can get good at from being an air traffic controller to being a French horn player to being a college professor, a researcher in particular, that requires innovative capacity to crack the code, to solve problems, that's fluid intelligence. And that gets better and better through your 20s and 30s. And and weirdly, it tends to peak in your late 30s or early 40s, and then it tends to decline. And he noticed this, Cattell noticed this, that these abilities tend to decline. Now, if you're really a striver and you're really good at what you do, and most of the people listening to us right now, they're good at something, they're really the only ones in their 40s who are going to notice these declines. And the way that you notice it is what you know, people in the management world call burnout. So you find that your dentist, for example, when he's, let's say, 43, has weirdly starts taking Fridays off to golf. Mm. It's like, why would you do that? Do this trivial kind of hobby instead of doing something that you, you love, like being a dentist? And the answer is because humans aren't happy when they're not making progress. The mathematicians will put it that all of happiness is in the first derivative. All of happiness is in getting better. The state is, this is a reason, by the way, Sam, that, that it's very easy to lose weight, but it's very hard to keep weight off. Because when the scale's going down, you're motivated and happy. And mm. it's when you hit your goal, the, 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 the reward for hitting your goal is now you never get to eat the things you like ever again for the rest of your life. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. And you know, this, is, this is the nature of you know, how we're wired. Progress is everything. And so what happens is that people get very frustrated and angry and desperate and afraid and sad when they're on the downslope of this, crisp, this fluid intelligence curve. 
What he also, what Cattell also pointed out is there's a second intelligence curve behind it that doesn't reward the same things. It's called crystallized intelligence and it's based on all the things you know and how to use the things that you know. So your working memory is a lot worse. Your innovative capacity is worse. Your speed and your ability to solve problems is worse. But your wisdom is higher. Your pattern recognition is higher. Your vocabulary is higher. Your teaching ability is higher. And so what you need to do if you want to use that is actually start doing the things that favor that increasing intelligence. The great news, incredible news, is that crystallized intelligence increases through your 40s and 50s and even 60s and stays high in your 70s and 80s. So there's a guy at University of California at Davis, a guy named Dean Keith Simonton, who's the mm-hmm. world's, I mean, you've, I, I don't know if you've had him on your show. He's no, no, I've read his books, but yeah. He's wonderful. I mean, he talks about the cadence of creative careers, and he talks about the half-life where he measures the corpus of work and quantity and quality of people in different creative careers. And he finds that those that have that load on fluid intelligence, like poetry, where you're just inventing stuff with words, that that has a a half-life around age 40, where you've done half of your lifetime work around age 40. When you think about it, you know, T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound, their best works were written in their late 20s and early 30s, and both guys lived into their 80s. Now, if you look at something that, that loads on crystallized intelligence, the body of knowledge and how to use it, like historians, they're basically just teachers. You have to know, you have to have the New York Public Library in your head to be able to be a historian. Their, half, their halfway point is about age 65. So if you're a historian, take care of your health because your best books are probably coming in your 80s is the point. And that's the difference between a career that loads on fluid and a career that loads on crystallized. Now, our, our job, you and me, is to be walking in our 40s and 50s from our fluid intelligence curve onto our crystallized intelligence curve by manifesting what we do in different ways. Probably that goes from you know, writing mathematical theorems, which I was doing, to writing a column in the Atlantic and teaching at Harvard, which I'm doing now. This podcast that you're doing is, a, is like a, a master display in crystallized intelligence because you're teaching with this particular podcast. This is a good thing that you're doing to favor what you're naturally getting good at in your 50s. <laughs> one likes to think. I mean, there there are some skills that, uh, or some kind of career arcs that leverage crystallized intelligence much earlier, right? I mean, so or it's not so much about fluid intelligence. And then there's some careers where to move from fluid to crystallized is really just it requires a fundamental change of career, sure. right? I mean, you have to yes. admit you've yes. hit the ceiling and now you've and now you're declining, and it's you're not going to be. I mean, there there are examples of this in science. Um, you you um, single out uh, you know Linus Pauling as one example of, of somebody. I mean, I guess it, this wasn't so much synonymous with a diminution in his abilities, although that could have been at the back of it. It was more just he um, in his attachment to his own status and influence. He kept jumping on to one more lurid misuse of his his abilities <laughs> after the next and, until he finally landed on uh, mega doses of vitamin C. We, I uh, mean, we should probably, I mean, for people who don't know the Linus Pauling yeah, story, I mean, it. it's like, it's, I mean, he, Linus Pauling, of course, won the Nobel Prize in chemistry for the nature of the chemical bond, which was just, I mean, if you don't have to be a chemist, I mean, he, he, his work in chemistry changed a lot of, changed our lives in all sorts of ways, esoteric and not so much. Yeah. And then later on in life, I mean, look, the fluid intelligence curve is the fluid intelligence curve. You can't, he, he, he won the Nobel Prize for work that he did in his 20s. 
they all win for work that they do in their 20s and 30s. They win it much later, usually, but it's for work that they do when they have this maximum amount of this incredible ability to focus and to use their unbelievable cognitive ability to greatest innovative ends. Well, later on in his life, just to, I mean, they, he's like the man behind me on the plane or like so many other people. He's frustrated, obviously, and, and to, perhaps to keep the limelight or for whatever reason, he got more and more involved in, in activities that were really ostentatious and probably ill-advised. I mean, he, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work on, on the limitation of nuclear arms, but he took the Lenin Prize in the Soviet Union around the same time. And, you know, for, you know, the Lenin Peace Prize, really? Mm -hmm. and, and then later he went on to kind of a pseudoscience of massive doses of vitamins. He thought that vitamins could cure virtually all mental illness. He was also very interested in eugenics and the idea that you could, you know, you could find the propensity to commit crimes and you should, you should put a tattoo on people for these. I mean, all kinds of stuff that we would that's really anathema to what we think is moral and appropriate, but also scientific today. And you would say that he's a person who was just desperate, desperate to stay on the first curve. And he could have done a lot better by getting on the second curve. And so one of the things that I talk about in, in my work these days is how I can do it, how you can do it, and how everybody can do it by, by thinking about what is it in our lives that's more fluid and what's more crystallized. And so I talk about startup entrepreneurs. They're much better later in life as venture capitalists because they have perspective and they're teachers, but they're not going to be, you know, sitting in a room 16 hours a day, writing code, having people slip a pizza under the door. It's just not going to happen. If you're you know, lawyers, for example, they're star litigators, ninjas, kind of like soul cowboys early on. And then later on, they make managing, better managing partners. You know, people are better as crack employees earlier, better as managers later. For people like you and me, you know, we write the most innovative theoretical papers early in our academic careers, but we're much better explainers and teachers later on in our career. And each one of us can find our own crystallized intelligence curve. But if you don't, woe be unto you. If you stay handcuffed onto that fluid intelligence curve, you're going to write it down to the basement and feel aggrieved for the rest of your life. How much of this is an actual difference in these uh, subtypes of intelligence? And how much of it is just energy and ambition and life circumstance? I mean, so there many people delay having families. This was not, I guess this is not so true if you go back far enough in history. But you know, now it's certainly true that you know, it, there's a period in your 20s and even early to mid-30s where if you're playing an academic or entrepreneurial game, and waiting for pizza to be pushed under the door, it, you very likely don't have kids. And again, you've got you've got a kind of endless energy just to to burn the candle at both ends. How much of that is a variable here that could be confounding how you're thinking about this? Well, in the literature, that's a I've, as you can imagine, that's a big discussion. Um, there is the wor a work of both psychologists and neuroscientists that, that suggest that some of it is structural in the way that the brain works. But no doubt, some of it is just the cadence of life. And part of the, you know, the part that I find especially provocative and interesting is that I think that a lot of people, by the time they get into their 40s, have stopped falling for you know, Mother Nature's tyrannical little trick which is you know, you're finally going to get that thing that you've always wanted, and it's going to be endlessly satisfying until the end of your life. After a while, you, you start saying, actually, that's not true. The new car smell isn't going to last. 
you know, that, that if I get that thing that I want in my career, if I invent the theorem or, or get the patent or, you know, get tenure or whatever the, your thing is, or but become the greatest French horn player in the world, if, if, you know, my, if the things had gone my way, that it's actually just not as satisfying as you think it's going to be and not for very long. And so that you start tempering your expectations that that has to be part of it too. No doubt these are separable things, but they're complementary to each other. They exacerbate each other. And they, they make it impossible for you to be able to be this kind of fluid genius that you were early on on the basis of, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work till I drop. Hmm. What are your thoughts about identity here and the, and the kind of normative degree to which it can be um, diminished or um, appropriately linked to something in your life? I mean, I, I, I know you touch on this in the book, but I, I, don't, there was no, I don't think there was a moment where I clearly understood whether or not you and I view this in the same way. I mean, just to hmm. give you my view, I, I, it feels to me, and this is, um, you'll detect the Buddhist influence here, that um, this, the sanest relationship to identity is to basically have none, right? Or to, certainly to have none that is that is crystallized to, to any sort of point of being inflexible or, you know, when challenged, becomes a, a source of suffering, right? It's just like, a, like there, there's no version of a self-concept. Actually, you, you do at one point invoke the term, actually the, the, the Buddhist term, mana, which is um, usually translated as conceit. And uh, but I think you talk about it in the in the mode of just social comparison, right? Like you're comparing oneself favorably or unfavorably to others. And I mean, the the insight here for me is that there really is no comparison to others that is a psychologically healthy basis for satisfaction. I mean, so like if if you're comparing yourself unfavorably to others, well, obviously that hurts, right? You know, you're you're feeling diminished by proximity to others, but Comparing yourself favorably to others also is uh, just a very petty, morally impoverished place to be. You know, I mean, just how much does do you want your sense of well-being to be predicated on, you know, looking down on your friends? You know, if you're noticing that you're smarter or richer or better looking than your friends, I mean, like, in in what does your friendship consist, right? If that's where you're finding your happiness, so it's just my sense personally is that. And, and I think it's what I believe philosophically is that you just you want the fumes of identity to fully dissipate, and it's immensely freeing uh, on some level not to know who one is in the world. I mean, it's not that you want your you want to be able to function. You don't want to ha- have a kind of uh, aphasia with respect to how you navigate social roles, right? I mean, you need to be able to say the the appropriate. And civil things on cue. You want to know, you know, how to dress for dinner, but to wear whatever self-concept you have as lightly as possible, so that it really is—it's just not the place from which you're relating to the next moment of experience. That's what seems optimal to me. Is there any way in which that you that you disagree with that? No, there's no, there's no way that I disagree with that. I mm-hmm. think that's exactly right. But I also will will point out that that is not that is not human nature. Mm-hmm. And, and that brings me to my sort of overarching point, which is that Mother Nature doesn't care if you're happy. 
Mother Nature has other goals for you. And, and you know, the, the great crossing of circuits in the, in the human mind, as far as I'm concerned, is that, that we want to be happy and we have urges for money and power and pleasure and, and fame. And the only way that we're going to know if we're successful along those dimensions is by comparing ourselves to other people. And we have brains, by the way. I mean, you can oxygenate your ventral striatum as well by having favorable social comparison as you can by taking methamphetamine. And, and, and you can get that, and it's a real reward, and people will be stuck on it, but it will not bring you ultimate happiness because happiness is not something on which we're sorting. Mother Nature is not actually mm. you know, make, giving us this, this imperative, this evolutionary imperative. That's the important thing to keep in mind, and I think that that is entirely consistent with Buddhist teaching, also with Christian teaching. The idea that if it feels good, do it is not the best way to live your life. It's actually a foolish way to live your life and that you need to be in charge. You can't let your feelings manage you. You should work to manage, your, to manage yourself and to manage your feelings. And, and, you know, there's interesting because other traditions look at it in a slightly different way. One that I find especially useful is, you know, the Hindus, they talk about Atman, which is the best way to think about it is in, in English, in the Western tradition, is that there's a difference between I and me. So I am an observer of the world. Me is an understanding of myself reflected through what Sam Harris thinks of me right now. And most people are all me and no I. Atman is the ultimate I. And the, the Hindus believe that only Atman can be in communion with Brahman, which is the Godhead. You can only really have a a full communion with the universality of the true nature of things when you're just observing as opposed to in being understanding yourself in the reflection of what everybody else thinks. And boy, oh boy, I mean, that's, that's the reason that people say that, for example, Zen Buddhism isn't a, a philosophy or let alone a religion. It's an attitude. It's I-ness. It's outward-facing observation of the world. And I think that this is a really important ambition for all of us, if we, if we want to be best in our, and we want to have the best nature, notwithstanding the fact that it's not very natural. Okay, well, so we've landed on this, uh, this topic of religion, and uh, no doubt my uh, blasphemy or um, reputation for blasphemy will have pr preceded me. So <laughs> really, I'd never heard. Are you an atheist? I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> so you can anticipate we might disagree about a few things here, but I, so I'm just wondering. There's probably some useful venting of our of our different perspectives here that we could indulge. Why is, on your view, faith the right gesture given our spiritual opportunities here? Why why does this? Because well, I mean, perhaps describe what you what your relationship is to faith here. Because obviously, I yeah. know it because I've read your book, but the audience won't. And then tell me, what, I guess, you know, what you mean by faith and, and why is, because uh, on, on my account, faith is, in the usual sense, something I think we need to overcome as opposed to something that is the, the spiritual center of the bullseye. So tell me yeah. what, you, what you mean by faith and what your faith is <laughs> so at this point. Faith, I'm talking about it in different ways as a Christian and than I do as a scientist. So when, when I do my work, when I say faith, it's, it's simply, it's, a, it's an abbreviation for living in a transcendental way. And so, mm. for example, what you find is when you boil the ocean of all of the tens of thousands of studies at this point that talk about the habits of the happiest people, that's a very popular kind of paper to write where you 
you do get survey data and you look at who's happiest and you see how they're living their life and you find empirical regularities. And you know, you can find should you eat Brussels sprouts or broccoli, and there's all kinds of marginalia in there. But but the big four are walking a transcendental life, which I'm gonna argue that you do. Yeah. Yeah. And I do too. Having a real sense of family life, friendship in a meaningful way, and then work that that is other focused, where you earn your success and you serve other people. Those are kind of the big four habits of the happiest people. So starting with faith, which is what you just asked me about, I mean, I just put the word faith on it because faith, family, friends, I'm I'm starting to get, it's sort of easy to remember. But Mm -hmm. what I really mean is getting your nose away from being pressed up against the canvas of life. I mean, life is kind of a pointillistic painting. and, And if you're too close to it, you see a dot. And that dot is you know, Sam Harris, what he had for breakfast and, you know, whether Arthur Brooks is going to be on time for his podcast and what's the commute going to look like tomorrow to the airport and, and on and on and on. And it's just, it's like watching the same episode of the same sitcom over and over and over again. It's unbelievably compulsive and tedious. And what you need is perspective and peace. And the way to do that is finding a way to zoom out, whether that's your, whether that's your meditation practice or being serious about the way that you walk in nature or analyze the works of Johann Sebastian Bach or practice of more traditional religious faith, you need perspective and peace about the why mm-hmm. and, and zooming out. So that's the point. That's where you get the happiness benefits from what I talk about faith. I think there's lots of ways to do that. As a scientist, I think there's a lot of ways to do that. It doesn't mean they're all right. I mean, that's a, that's a, a completely different question, obviously. But from a a psychological and probably neuroscientific perspective, there's lots of ways to actually get that part of the habits of happiness done. Hmm. And so that's how I'm talking about it largely in my research work. In my personal life, the way that I do that is- Before we we jump to your personal life, I would just add that there there are some other confounding variables in this research. This is a, a, I guess, an atheist hobby horse. But so all of the data that suggests that religious people are happier- I mean, some of it I just I, I take as given. It, it's not it's not implausible to me that that would be the case, given the the psychological leverage of you know believing in specific things. I mean, I, you know, I've I've long argued that there really you know there is there's nothing that takes the sting out of death quite so fully as a, a sincere belief that death is a total illusion and that you get everything you want after you die. Right? I mean, if, if you really believe that. I have no doubt that you feel far less concerned about death than you, you know, a person otherwise would. But the other variable here is community, right? And and when you look at the kind of the breakdown of community in most secular contexts and just the atomization of everything, if you're you know, sincerely religious people will tend to, you know, if you're going to church every Sunday, you you know, you have a a machine that is maintaining community for you in addition to just all, you know, all the, the the shared beliefs and you know it w- wouldn't be surprising that that would you know lead to a higher self-measure of, of happiness in in you know religious versus irreligious people so yeah in, in when i'm the way i'm talking about it though is that i separate out kind of in the right hand side of the model the the community part from the faith part mm mm-hmm. Because there's lots and lots of ways to get community. And, yeah. and by the way, I also have data that show that atheists and very serious religious believers have equal fear of death, which is to say not. The right. people who are most afraid of death are people who have kind of lightweight religious 
beliefs that they don't live according to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. And so it's it's really worth pointing out that it's worth believing something and acting according to it. That's a that's a that's an important thing to do is to understand to think seriously about what you believe and act according to it. But once again, what I believe that the big swinger in, in is having a transcendental walk through life is is having a, a perspective on yourself. Look, if the my life is all just Arthur Brooks, that sucks, man. I don't want mm. that. That's boring. That's tedious. That's stressful. I mean, really, all the things that are happening in my life, this is what life is all about. I don't want any part of that. That's just, that's, that's not meaningful. I want there to be meaning beyond the traffic coming in from the airport and what I'm digesting right now. I want bigger meaning than that. And I have to focus on that sincerely, and, which you do and I do, and we do it in different ways. That's the point that I'm trying to make about this. Now, that's different than which perspective is more right in some cosmic sense. And, and I'm actually even not that concerned with it, but I do know mm-hmm. that in my own life, the way that I practice this is I'm a Roman Catholic. I've been a Christian my whole life. And you know, now, since I've actually done the work as a scientist on it, I said, well, am I going to be serious about it or not? And so I do. And I go to Mass every day. And I practice it, and I, I pray my rosary, which is a form of meditative prayer, very much like, the, I'm sure, the meditation that you did this morning. Mm-hmm. And we probably get the same neuroscientific benefits from it. It, it. Probably the same thing is happening in our two brains as a result of it. And you know, the one thing that I can't say is that I'm right, because I don't know if I'm right. The truth is I don't know if I'm right, but the transcendental walk makes me a lot more comfortable being in the zone of not knowing if I'm right, because that's kind of what the mystery of life is all about, Mm. is respecting the fact that we don't know. I can live with not knowing if I'm not too pressed up against the painting. Has uh, psychedelics been part of your adventure up until this point? (laughs) No, no, no. As, as a matter of fact, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't take substances at all. And mm-hmm. part of the reason is because I'm chicken. You know, I have a lot. Of, there's a lot of substance abuse problems in my family, and the stakes are high. And I realize that nobody gets addicted to psilocybin mushrooms. It's right. not the same thing as methamphetamine or opiates or alcohol. I, I kind of get that. But the truth is, that's just not part of the equation for me. Now, we also know from a lot of good research that that meditation and prayer, and especially meditative prayer over the long haul has a lot of the same effect on the brain as, as use of psychedelics. Psychedelics might, for some people, be just more thrifty and efficacious, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just the only thing that produces a truly guaranteed result. I mean, you know, every hour on the hour, you know, like there's just, whether it's you have a, a positive experience or a negative one, you're guaranteed to have a a highly non-ordinary experience if you take, you know, right. the, the requisite dose of psilocybin or LSD. And that matters because there's so many people who just are, you know, and I, I count myself among these people, you know, I think, but for some early experiences with psychedelics, I just, I would have bounced off the whole project of having a spiritual life or practicing meditation. I mean, I just, I wouldn't have seen a there there, you know, I, I just, I, you know, again, I, I don't know, it's hard to know what the actual counterfactual mm-hmm. is because I, you know, I, I didn't have this experience. I, I came to it after I had an, in, an initial experience on, on the, on the drug MDMA. And so, but what that experience taught me really beyond any capacity for doubt is that it was, I mean, this is almost a, a tautology, but it's, it, it taught me that it's, possible to have a very different experience of 
you know, being a mind in a world, right? Because I had just right. had one. And, and there was nothing about it being initiated by a drug that made it seem contingent upon drug use, right? I mean, it was just, it was just you know, one of the hallmarks of the experience was, okay, this is, in some ways, this is more real than what I'm tending to experience. The person I'm, you know, I'm going to become when, this dr- when the drug wears off is in many respects less of who I really am rather than, than more of who I really am. And, and the fact that, that I'm just tending to be that person day after day is a pathology, really. And now, now I have to deal with that. You know, and obviously, I can't just keep taking MDMA every day. So what, what, are, what are the implications of having this recognition that you know, the ways in which I'm seeking happiness, the ways in which I'm tending to measure myself against others, the ways in which I'm you know, a defended and defensive neurotic, nothing about this is normative. And there's got to be a way to outgrow this you know, in some way. And because I, I just experienced you know, five solid hours of being free of it. And it was, right. you know, it was a revelation. So yeah, I right. mean, that's, that's the, the, the thing about psychedelics, from my point of view, is it's not so much that they constitute a path for people to keep walking, but they can just show you beyond any capacity to doubt that the mind is not what you thought it was, right? For, well, I mean, the important point, I think, is not that you come up with a different theory of what reality is, but that you question your own perception of reality. You know, most people go through life not questioning their perception of reality. And that's a mistake because, you know, there's all kinds of ways, there's all kinds of research that shows that what we see isn't true. <laughs> We're mm. missing things and our interpretation of things are wrong because we, we have the ability to gate out all kinds of stimuli that are relevant but we don't know which are relevant. I mean, the reality that we see is not objective reality. It's subjective reality on the basis of our circumstances. This is a fact. And there are all kinds of ways to bring this home, but you have a much richer understanding, a truer understanding of life when you're questioning, when you're questioning yourself, when you're interrogating your own reality with a suspicion, with a real skepticism of that. And that's what a great spiritual life can give you. And perhaps, I mean, one of the, 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 experiences that actually helped me about this a lot, and it's not a happy experience, is that just to see psychosis in my mother, because she was Mm -hmm. really grave mental illness. And when you're living with somebody, when you're close to somebody, when you love somebody who clearly sees things that don't exist, she was calling the exterminator every day because Mm -hmm. there were spiders all over her house. There was no spiders in the house, but she, she saw spiders. And when you see somebody who has a perception of reality that clearly isn't reality, and who, who has the same basic mind that you do, you have to, you become very skeptical of your own understanding of reality. And, and this is one of the things is that, I, that I, I try to achieve in my spiritual life, in my meditative prayer practice. And what I ask God for is a greater understanding of my own limitations, is a greater mm-hmm. skepticism, a greater ability to interrogate my own understanding, including my own understanding of spiritual reality. It's like you know, we, we in, in the Bible, they say, I believe, Lord, help me help my unbelief. But one of the ways you can help my unbelief is by fortifying my unbelief. This is where we can iterate into something that's just stronger and, and more secure, is to understand that we will be in a permanent state of skepticism of our belief. And, and that suspension itself, I think, is a really important part of human life. Mm. 
All right, so let me let me present a um, a case for atheism to you here, as it, as it sort of kindled for me while reading your book, because uh, you know obviously I agree with basically everything in your book, and and I, and I recognize that we we're describing in this conversation a common project, and yet the unrepentant and uh, voluble atheist in me is <laughs> is still around, and I I think it's important. So it's um, let me just uh, I'll just. Uh, foist it on you and, and get your reaction. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's misunderstood. Because obviously, I I have much more in common with you. I think in every particular of this conversation than many, even most of my fellow atheists do. Right? I mean, it's like if you're talking to Richard Dawkins or Daniel Dennett or Christopher Hitchens. Uh, we were, as you know, I think. You know, for the purposes of describing a publishing phenomenon, treated like a four-headed atheist there for about ten years. <laughs> but you know, the, the 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 real difference between us is that I I've always had a conviction that there's there's a baby in the bathwater of religion that is not only worth saving, but it is in fact the most important thing in human life. And my my gripe with religion is that religion most of the time doesn't even do a very good job of protecting that baby, you know, and, and, and yet it protects so many other things that are not only not uh, important for its survival, but, you know, are, are creating immense harm, you know, based on, you know, various irreconcilable dogmas out in the world. Uh, and so the, the, the baby for me really is the capacity for self-transcendence, for lack of a better word. I mean, just the, and all of the, all of those all of the normative, psychological, and ethical implications that follow from that, right? So, like, like, how is it that someone can be like Jesus or Buddha, you know, whoever those historical figures actually were? There's just there's no question that that it's possible for someone to really experience a, a transformation of their own mind and life, and for that transformation to be durable and you know compelling to others, and it can, it can become the basis of Truly extraordinary wisdom and insight into the the human condition. So I have no doubt about any of that. I think it's the most important human project. And yet, it's obvious to me, uh, and this is a fairly strong, objective, you know, if not uh, arrogant claim of of being right or very likely right about this. It's obvious to me that this is a this is a universal fact of the human mind, and is therefore deeper than any contingency of culture, right? It's not, this is not the, this is like physics as opposed to being like, you know, one's taste in, in food or dress, which is to say it's you know, the truths here are not merely made up by anyone and they would be true whether or not anyone in any given generation could discover them. And so just as it would be crazy to be talking about Christian physics, just because it happened to be Christians who made the first breakthroughs in, in physics, it is in the end crazy to be talking about Christian spirituality because the real spirituality has to float free of all of the denominations, right? I mean, there's just there is no sectarian version of it, really. And and I guess I mean that's a, that's a strong claim, but it's not the claim that rules out any attachment to or love of specific traditions. I mean, I, you know, the truth is I love Jesus in half his moods and I love parts of the Bible and I certainly love sitting in churches and, uh, you know, so it's just, I I get all that, but 
I, I do view sec- religious sectarianism as a real problem that we, that we as a species have to outgrow. And, and we have to outgrow it intellectually, but we have to outgrow it, you know, even for more urgent reasons, because people are still kind of shattering our world over it. And so I guess I'm, I'm wondering why you don't see that possibility and why you would want to identify as a, you know, in any kind of sectarian way as, right, this is, I'm, I'm placing my bet on Roman Catholicism. Hmm. Right? To begin with, I'm delighted to know that you're truly an objectivist, that you're not an existentialist. You're not a subjectivist. You're not a Hegelian at all. Hmm. I mean, you basically said there's an underlying reality. Yep. You're asserting an underlying reality. Now, if you were, if we were, if were, you were Sartre, you would say, and what, what you basically said is that ex- essence precedes existence, that we come into existence and there's an essence behind it, and that we're, we're, we're struggling to find it, and we're struggling in different ways to find out that essence. I mean, all of the existentialists, except for perhaps Kierkegaard, talked about the fact that, that, that there, there is no essence, that we exist and that we are, are obligated morally to figure out what the essence, what the meaning is. And, and if we don't find it, well, then we're just nihilists, sort of Nietzschean in this particular way. And that's obviously not what you think. So you're a lot well, I would closer. Just add, yeah, I would just add one caveat there. One footnote is that certain things are obviously culturally constructed and so that is their essence, right? Sure. It's, it's not that, you know, and, but sure. you know, you can, you can be a realist and admit, you know, all of this of category of things that we do in fact. Right. Like construct. language, yeah. for example, nobody thinks that there's a, you know, there's a, a, but there are some basic symbols around life and, and our languages are all struggling to describe many of the same sets of experiences. And I think mm. that your point is that that's what all of these spiritual and, and non-spiritual, but transcendental traditions are trying to do is to, they're, they're, they're a curve fit. You know, this is an interesting thing about, you know, statistics is, is, a, is a curve fit to some underlying reality. Uh, physics, you know, Newtonian physics, very imperfect, is a curve fit to the underlying properties of how the natural world works. And so is Einsteinian physics, and so is Higgs boson. And, and whatever comes later is going to get to be a better and better curve fit. And if that's the case, then what we're looking at is different systems of spiritual physics to get at some better underlying phenomenon. It's interesting also, you know, my father grappled with this. He was a PhD biostatistician. He, you know, in his dissertation work, he wrote biostatistical theory. I mean, he's a big brain guy. And he, and he used to say that, you know, that he was also a, a, a serious Christian his whole life. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and he used to say, ah, oh, the most beautiful thing that God created was the standard normal distribution, such that his miracles are things that are three standard deviations away from the mean. He, he believed that it was a miracle of God's nature to create randomness in the universe. Now, now this is antithetical to the way that a lot of deterministic Christians see the world, but it, what it suggests is that th- those aren't the only way to see the world. These are different languages for, for, for struggling to see what the, what the realities, the underlying objective realities might be and what our experience of them might be. We don't know if one is more right than another. I, I have the humil- I have the appropriate humility to know that I don't have some special knowledge. I don't have any special knowledge at all. But I also understand that I am born in a particular place such that, you know, I'm from Seattle, Washington, and I grew up with a West Coast accent in English. And 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 these are the circumstances under which I can grapple with the realities that somebody who has more or less the same realities as a human person in Calcutta would have it. I I, I love going to Calcutta, you know, I, I but that's not my home. 
And that's not actually not the vernacular that I've learned. This is not the language that I, that I can use to apprehend what I hope are the, the, sh- you know, the platonic shadows on the cave wall. There, we, we have to find some way to do this. Now, what you rightly object to in the way that people live their religious experience is the dogma to say, my way is inherently right. There's no way I'm making any mistake. And so therefore, I'm going to denigrate or even harm you. And that's, I think, not necessary. Mother Teresa, St. Teresa of Calcutta, was asked, how come you're palling around with all these gurus, you know, (laughs) all these, you know, Jains and Parsis Hmm. and Hindus and Buddhists? She said, you know, I love all religions, but I'm in love with the Catholic faith. And that's how I feel. I'm in love with the Catholic faith. And, And I love, Sam, I love how you think. And I don't think it's that different. Yeah, although I, I just I, again the I feel like there's an opportunity to fly free of some of the contingencies you just mentioned. So, for instance, I mean, take something like romantic love, right? Which is you know it's not a the totality of love. It's not even the most important part of love, but it's you know romantic love is a thing that people value. It's a phenomenon psychologically and socially. It's important. It moves a lot in our world. And you know, people spend an inordinate amount of time focused on it and um, dealing with its aftermath, etc. Now, we could live in a world where a majority of people not only thought about romantic love in all the usual ways, but they thought that it was under the control of Cupid, right? I mean, that's right. possible. I mean, there's a there's a history and mythology around that, and it just by sheer in, in my view, by sheer luck, it's not a staple of anyone's religious fixation and concern now. I mean, I, I would imagine there's virtually no one taking Cupid seriously. Oh, I bet and there's a few. There's got to be a few, but uh, it's what, you know, one wonders whether they're, they're just putting us on. But there's nothing about, about the story of Cupid or the invisibility of Cupid that when you compare it to other religious beliefs, just cries out, well, this is obviously a fraud, right? I mean, it's totally possible that there's some alternate, you know, world where Cupid would be a major concern for all of us, and we would have, you know, rival sects that were annihilating one another because of different interpretations of the literature around Cupid or, you know, different claims about how many arrows he has in his quiver, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, and it's hard for me to see that our world would be better uh, in fact, I think it would be much worse if most talk about romantic love most of the time was encumbered by very strong claims about the necessity of believing in Cupid and propitiating him and just how old is he and how, you know, did you actually catch a sight of him and how do you know it was real a real arrow from Cupid and not a fake arrow? So, I mean, there could be a literature around all of that and there could be college courses taught on it and all of that would be misspent energy, and yet the the reality of love is there to be contemplated and experienced and dealt with, and yet, and we're better to do that in a truly transcultural and modern way rather than to be trotting out ancient Romans and and Greeks to to help us on that topic. And yeah, I mean, so let me let me you know, push back on that a little bit, Sam, because I think that there's all kinds of reason that we that we want to use symbols and analogies to understand concepts that are that are that are true that that are, are that really are essence that precedes existence 
So mm-hmm. in, the, in the case of romantic love, for example, I mean, I can, I, I talk about romantic, I teach romantic love to my students at, at Harvard and I, uh, and I talk about it using analogy constantly. You know, I talk about the, you know, the neurochemical cascade that happens with testosterone and estrogen and, and, and norepinephrine and dopamine and, and, you know, when serotonin falls and makes you impa- infatuated and finally when you have your, the love of your life because of the oxytocin that binds us together. And, and, and there's all kinds of ways to describe that. I talk about, you know, dopamine is like the tide coming in. And when the tide goes out, you better have oxytocin on the beach or there's nothing left. And, and how do you get these types of things? And, and, by, and I use other symbols like, like language, for example. There's all kinds of reasons to use poetry to get mm-hmm. ideas across. The, the problem is getting hung up on the poetry itself as opposed to the underlying truths, the underlying concepts. And, and that's the important thing. You know, it's when, when we talk in the Christian faith about romantic love, the important thing is that we believe that the creator, that there is, there is creative force of, in the universe that's based on love and that's refracted in the way that we understand each other. That, you know, the, the Greeks who have something like 11 words for love, they're different refractions of the, of the most cosmic love that exists. And that's, Christians would call that God's love. And the love that I have for my wife is a, is a simulacrum for God's love because I'm made in God's image. Now, I, I don't know exactly the, the literality of this. Mm. I, I can't judge that. But I do know that this is an incredibly effective way for me to understand what I believe is a cosmic truth of the universe. And, and it's not the only way I understand. And other people object and think there are better ways. I, I like my way. And if you, know, if you wanted to become Catholic, I'd sponsor you. Mm. Um, I would love that. I would like nothing more. But the point is that I, why? Why? The answer is because I love you and I want you to be happy. Because that's my role as a human being. That's my meaning as a human being. And the way that I learned that is through these symbols that we're talking about in, that are the basis of my religion and the basis of your ethical system, and we're converging on the same set of ideas, and that's really important. Mm. Yeah, I guess for me, the, the difference is just that I, I want to... So I, I'm, I'm very Catholic in the, in the small C sense of just wanting to be able to sample from all of the world's great literature and, and traditions and just take the best ideas as I find them and use them. And, and, their, and their provenance ultimately is, is not what's important, right? And Yeah, sure. Um, and and as, I want the same thing, except that what I, the way that I do that slightly differently than you is that I want the world's traditions and I incorporate them into my technique in a way. So, you know, I studied meditation, sat in meditation with the Tibetan Buddhists in Dharamsala. It made me v- much better at praying my, my Catholic rosary. Mm. I mean, I understand breath better. I understand the role of the heartbeat better. I understand my posture better. And the result is, I'm a better Catholic. And I've discussed it with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I say, what do you want me to do? And he says, I want you to be a perfect Catholic. <laughs> and, and the reason is because this really the same thing I think that you're saying. I, I think that at the end of the day, we're weirdly close to each other on this. And we can get stuck in the details. We can get stuck in the details mm-hmm. where, I, where I say that, look, Sam, you're not doing this, that, and the other thing. So you're completely 180 degrees off the truth. I don't think that's right, actually. What I'm hearing here is more of a, um, it, it's somewhat analogous. This may sound like it trivializes it, but it's not meant in that spirit. But it, it's somewhat analogous to just picking 
your favorite sports team and just loving, you know, so like if you're, you're a soccer fan, you just love Manchester United and you're going to root for them. And, you know, you're really going to, you're going to take that seriously in the sense that it, it can occupy a lot of your life and, and you get immense joy from it. But when push comes to shove, you're not going to, you're really not going to argue that someone is wrong to love Liverpool or some other team, right? Like, they, like they're playing the same, they're playing a different game. You know, it's like the Dalai Lama saying, you know, I want you to be the best Manchester United fan you can be, even though I love Liverpool. But that's not, that's not what, what the real traditions have been. And it's not, it's not what the traditions are for many people. I mean, I hesitate to say most, but and I guess a lot of this gets distilled for me in a person like Aquinas, who you mentioned at many points in your book, and, you know, without, you know, always favorably. But, you know, for Aquinas, for me, represents a kind of missed opportunity. And, and, and I think, I mean, I don't, I'm, not, I'm certainly not a scholar of Catholicism you know, or of Aquinas, but in my understanding of his life, in, in, in some sense, I, I think he, he is supposedly recognized a missed opportunity in his own life. I and mean, so, for instance, he, I think at the end of his life, he's reported to have looked back upon all of his writing and, and casuistry as just, I think the quote is, as so much straw. That's exactly uh, and, right. That's exactly right. But he had he a fell vision. Silent. Well, he had yeah. a vision of, he had a beatific vision. You know, he had right. a mystical beatific vision, and he found that all of his words and symbols paled in compared to the paled in comparison with the reality, with the cosmic reality, which is so right. important because, of course, that's true. Because, of course, your curve fit is going to be inaccurate. It it stands to reason that it's all so much straw. I mean, I think that you know, if there is some version of the beatific vision for Sam and Arthur at some point, that we're going to be laughing hysterically. At, at, you know, our, our lame sort of ham-fisted attempts to get at the cosmic realities of what's going on here. Because we can't, look, I mean, we talked about that before. We know that even if there is reality, which I suspect that there is, that we don't see it. We're just doing our best at well, this no, point. Well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm making a, a more overweening claim than that. I mean, I, I see enough of it to know that certain things are definitely wrong, right? Yeah. Or, or, like, like, for instance, I mean, like, take Aquinas, I mean, the thing with Aquinas is, I mean, he's, he, as you know, he spent an inordinate amount of his intellectual energy and, you know, his prodigious intellectual energy and talent on questions like, you know, what would happen to cannibals on the day of resurrection, right? Because if, you yeah. know, cannibals are busy eating people and God has to resurrect the bodies of all the people, you know, what, you know, and, right. and, you know, the body of one person has been incorporated into the body of a cannibal, where's, you know, who gets resurrected, um, right? So, like, that, from my point of view, is just, it might have been fun for him to do, but it's, there are better uses of his intellect then and now. But e even yeah. more important, you know, Aquinas thought heretics should be put to death, and his, his reasoning on that score was definitely instrumental in giving us the the Inquisition for centuries in Europe, and his his reasoning is understandable, given that he thought there was only one true way to salvation. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, like I think the example, the analogy he draws. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he talks about like you know, we we he says something like you know we put counterfeiters to death, 
uh, and how you know how much more grave is the the sin of you know counterfeit you know spiritual teaching and these aren't his words but this is the, the sentiment like he was like this is of course if you're going to put counterfeiters to death for merely debasing the, the currency of course we're going to put heretics to death for debasing the you know the one true path to to god and when if you actually believe that the stakes are that high it's understandable, right? I'm not, I'm, you know, I, you know, I'll bite the bullet there and say, yes, if in fact it is the one true path to God, well, then there's, there's really nothing more grave than leading my children astray on that score, right? Right. But there's one thing that's worth pointing out about Aquinas as well. I mean, that's, that's, you see that in Aquinas, but you also notice that Aquinas relied on the writings of Plato and Aristotle, who were pagans. Yeah. And, and so did St. Augustine, who was just as starchy as they get in his writings. He, you know, they they talked about the pagans as actually having, you know, godly truth. And this is, you know, Thomas Merton talked about the Buddha. And and the truth is that we're all effectively it, trying to adhere to the tradition and, and the language that we have, and at the same time trying to get the best from other places. And that's the kind of flexibility that I think that we, we should encourage with everybody. What can I learn from you and at the same time becoming a better version of me? In, in trying to understand the reality around me in a cosmic sense. It's interesting because you can, you can get kind of a, I teach at the Harvard Business School, so forgive me, we think the whole world is organized in a, into a two-by-two two matrix. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, there's my belief and your belief. And, and the way that I can organize it is if whether I, I know what I believe to be true or whether I'm not sure and whether I think that what you believe is wrong or whether I'm not sure. And, and, and everybody kind of falls into one of these quadrants. And, you know, the truth is, I believe that the things that, that my beliefs, I'm, I, I'm confident in them, but I don't necessarily know if you're wrong. And that's very different than being of the, I'm not sure about my beliefs, but I sure think Sam's wrong. And that's one of the things that, that actually leads to the most bitterness, the most disagreement that we actually see in these religious debates and these very hardcore, you know, arguments between atheists and Christians. And atheists and people of other religions today is what they're really arguing about is like, I'm not so sure about what I think, but I'm sure that you're full of it. I'm sure Mm. that you're completely wrong. And I think it's better to start from the humility that says, I am willing to throw in with my own beliefs, but I'm not willing to throw out yours. I think that's a much better way to start because then I can learn from you. And, And in learning from you, I can actually be at peace and in communion with you, and I can become a better version. Of myself with my own beliefs. Mm. I guess my foundational claim here is that belief is the wrong tool for the job, right? Like I, you know, thought itself is the wrong tool for the job. And my sense of what spirituality really is, or what the the ever present opportunity is, is to kind of move beyond our concepts and however we acquired them, and simply experience consciousness in the present moment in all of its depth. And that's the transcendental or self-transcending aspect to it. And I, and I know that's not, I mean, I know that is a part of uh, even the, the apogee of Christian practice as well. I mean, that, you know, that, sure. that, you know, prayer and silence. I mean, when you look at like, um, I don't know, did you see did you see that uh, documentary Integrate Silence of about the uh, Carthusian monks in outside of Grenoble? 
No, I didn't see that. There, I, sh- I need to, right? Yeah, it's, it's an amazing documentary. It's mostly silent, as, but you're, you're just following these monks through their day. And they're, they're in the, the most picturesque monastery uh, you've ever seen in uh, the mountains of um, France. And actually, uh, there's a point of contact uh, there with the Dalai Lama, because I saw this monastery on a day off uh, from bodyguarding the Dalai Lama. I went to, to <laughs> this monastery, and you can't actually get in. So a friend and I were just looking at this amazing place. It's just in this deep valley between snow-capped mountains. And it's been there, I think, I think it's close to a thousand years old. I mean, it's just there have been monks in there continuously praying for many, many generations. And and anyway, in the middle of our contemplating this, a helicopter arrives and and lands on the lawn and and the Dalai Lama gets out. (laughs) <laughs> and, 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 get, and gets whisked in, into the monastery. Uh, so he, he got a good look at the inside. But um, when I look at, you know, how those, those men have lived their lives in silence and in, in kind of perpetual routine and ritual and prayer, you know, of course, moving beyond belief and and having some kind of profound engagement with the profundity of the present moment, it, you know, that, that has to have been what was on the menu and what, what they were experiencing. For sure, for sure. And by the way, this is the same thing we were talking about before. The point is Atman, is I, I-ness, not me-ness. Belief, when I say my belief versus Sam's belief, I'm, I'm bouncing my beliefs off you and understanding myself in the context of our differences. And that's social, that's all, that's comparison, that's human comparison, which is necessarily through a glass darkly, that's a problem because that just leads layer after layer after layer of inaccuracy. We are looking for the ultimate observation where we have the complete humility, the emptiness that basically says that that is a, a level of comfort with, Lord, I don't know. I don't know. And mm-hmm. Lord, help me to be fully alive despite the fact that I don't know and to be comfortable with it. It's interesting. You know, I've walked the community of Santiago twice, mm-hmm. which is a profoundly contemplative experience. It's just, it's just the best thing ever. It sounds amazing. I it's have a, a friend who's walked it a bunch. Yeah, and yeah. what you do is that you beat yourself into submission of I-ness. That's what happens because you just can't do anything except walk. You know, you, you don't have your devices, you don't have, you're not talking on the telephone if you have any sense about you that, and you're, you think about the trivialities of, you know, my legs hurt and the dirt on my shoes in prayer and worship and, and contemplation. And what that does is it makes it possible for you to live a little bit of a monastic existence and to, to have a walking meditation, et cetera, et cetera. So the technique is obvious, but what that does is it gets you away from the meanness and toward the I-ness such that that a lot of the differences, the sectarian differences that we're talking about, I don't know about the legitimacy, but they become irrelevant mm-hmm. because you have a purer understanding of what you're trying to do with your faith in the first place. Well, Arthur, it's uh, great to connect. I don't think we're going to resolve all of the, <laughs> the mysteries and paradoxes of uh, our viewing the world at all differently, but um, to be continued, I really enjoyed the conversation. Me too, Sam. I really appreciate the work that you're doing to bring these ideas to people in a really vivid form, and I'm a fan. Likewise. Likewise, I recommend people pick up the book because we did not exhaust its contents, and that is From Strength to Strength. Thanks, Sam. Talk to you again soon, I hope.